This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. I hate that I'm recording on Thursdays because that's not like the plan, but at the same time, um, here we are. So this is just who I am. That's just who I am right now. <laughs> uh, life does not a lot for many leisures. Um, but anywho, it's episode 60 and we're here and like, that's so fun, right? We did it. We made it to 60 episodes. Despite the world's best attempts at killing it, we did it. <laughs> this week has been a lot of fun, but also like massively exhausting. Um, so my husband and I have gotten tickets to some concerts and comedy shows, and of course, they're all within like a two-week period, and they're also, of course, during a time frame where we don't have anybody to really watch our dog. Uh, so I've been driving back and forth into the city and out of the city and super late at night, and it's been like, and like working on top of it, very tired. Also, we're throwing a like little get-together for my friends. Um, they don't listen to the podcast, but we've been like trying to get stuff around, like done around our house like crazy. And uh, it's just with that and school and work and these concerts and the house stuff, it's just been like, <laughs> I'm panicking just a little bit. Um, yeah, it's not usually my normal state of being. So um, yeah, there's no housekeeping to my knowledge. It's your standard fair week. I've just been doing my best to like, that's really all I can do right now. Um and honestly, I, I, this week has gotten so far away from me that, like, I didn't even remember to post for Teaser Thursday or Teaser Tuesday. And, like, today, I fully thought today was Friday. And I'm very disappointed that it's not. So do with that what you will. Uh, so um, speaking of Instagram, though, if you're not following me on there, you should. I'm at Cabernet and True Crime, and I post something every single day unless I forget to do so. And it's a great time. Today, we're going to take a break from the United States and go to a different country for an episode or two. That's still to be, to, that, wow, that's still to be determined, but not today because I've already done the research for today and it's happening. It's happening literally right now and guess what? You're part of it. Unfortunately, though, this place takes, this episode takes place in Scotland and while there's absolutely nothing wrong with Scotland, you're going to have to hear me butcher some names. It happens. And I mean, like, I'm going to do my best here. I've obviously Googled the phonetics, um, like, what's the word? I've Googled the way to say these things and let's see if that helps me out. It truthfully can't be any worse than the Miriam Sula Kiotis episode. Well, that's for sure. I went a little toward more known on the spectrum of cases just because I, like I said beforehand, do not have the mental energy at the current moment to dig through tens of news articles just to find someone's date of birth. I usually do um, this week and next week and probably the following week are going to be a little bit different. Um, obviously, I don't think this person's like super duper well known, but it's still it's still on brand of like lesser known, but I, I just, yeah, I don't have, I don't have time right now to play like hardball detective at the current moment. And that's okay. You know, we got to do what we got to do. Well, all I've learned in my life is that consistency beats intensity. I say that to myself every single day, but at the same time showing up and doing something that you love is better than not doing it at all. And honestly, the crazy guilt that I feel, um, when I don't do it, I'd rather do it to the best of my ability when I can than not do it at all. Um, and 
Yeah, I'm just going to tell you right now, this one is a wild ride. It's going to be a doozy. Um, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, obviously none of these are good, but like this one is particularly just heinous in nature and all around fucking gross. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm telling you to bu buckle up for that because you're going to be made mad a lot during this, just like I was made mad researching this. Um, but there are some pretty cool historical events that happened during this and it kind of changed the game for the way, um, detectives solve cases like this. So that's pretty interesting. Like there's the silver lining to a really, really shitty situation. So without any further ado on my end, let's get into it. Robert Black was born in Grangemouth, Stirlingshire, Scotland. And of course, normally this is where I tell him where it is. And this is a hard question because of course I don't know the geography of Scotland all that well because I've obviously uh, never been there. Um, not that I don't want to go, it just hasn't happened for me yet. But it's between Edinburgh and Glasgow, which I'm sure I butchered, that I, it's like kind of in between them. Um, that's all really all you get on that. He was born on April 21st, 1947. His mom was named Jesse Hunter Black and his father was unknown. She refused to fill out that section of Robert's birth certificate. Of course, I mean, the 40s were a very different time and uh, having an illegitimate child was really, really frowned upon. Jesse Black, who was 24 at the time, unmarried and earning minimum wage at a factory job, was planning to give up Robert for adoption and then emigrate to Australia. It's expected, at least from what I've seen, that she was doing so to get away from the stigma of having an illegitimate child. Unfortunately, though, um, after his birth and all that, Robert was never adopted. Uh, at six months old, he was placed within a foster family. Um, they were a middle-aged couple in Kinlochleven named Jack and Margaret Tulip. Although never officially adopted, he took on their last name. Ironically, within a year of either Robert's birth or Robert getting adopted, either way, there's only a six-month difference, Jessie Black found herself married to a man named Francis Hall. She went on to have four more children with him, none of whom were aware that she had a child out of wedlock, and they never knew that they had a half-sibling. And if Robert knew he had half-siblings, um, it was never talked about. He never talked to them. Um, Robert's birth mother successfully emigrated to Australia, where one can assume she lived a perfectly normal life with her husband and her children until she died in 1982. Unfortunately... Uh, Robert does not get to live that kind of life. Uh, he does not, there's not a whole lot of rainbows and butterflies for him, even in the beginning. And now that's not any type of excuse for what he does, but um, this is definitely one of those cases where I think upbringing definitely has a lot to do with the outcome. And maybe had somebody stepped in, uh, maybe this wouldn't have happened. That's, that's fine. So, um, Jack and Margaret Tulip, they're Robert's foster parents, just to bring you, you know, back, um, were both in their 50s at the time of them fostering Robert. They were seasoned foster parents, and they had done it several times before. In total, Robert lived with them for 11 years. Uh, the majority of that time was with Margaret. Uh, Jack died when Robert was only five years old. About this time, at least, 
like the first handful of years of his life, Robert cannot remember. He said in an interview that he had no recollection of his foster father, no recollection of the bruises or being bruised, despite other people in his life recalling such instances. Um, so there were several reports of him as a child being just, I mean, absolutely covered in bruises, and he doesn't remember having them or the way he received them. Um and he also has no memories before the age of five years old. And a psychologist that interviewed Robert after everything happens uh, said that most humans have at least some vague memories of toddlerhood. Um, even if it's just the essence of a memory, it's still there. It's suggested that Robert may have been subjected to some type of emotional or physical trauma as a baby and that his memory has basically wiped it out to protect his brain. It's also suggested that allegedly this trauma may have been caused by his foster father explaining his complete absence in Robert's memory. Um, despite these psychiatric observations, Robert recalls no abuse at the hands of his foster father. Um, however, he certainly does remember the punishments he received from his foster mother. Margaret used to lock him in the house or pull his pants down and spank him with a belt if he was bad. Robert also had recurring nightmares as a child, causing him to wake up and find that he had wet the bed. And for that, he got a severe beating for, um, for this from Margaret. And that is, I mean, one of the signs, one of the trifecta signs of uh, a possible serial killer was bedwetting. Um, not that every bedwetter is going to be a serial killer. Just it's, it's interesting that in the, in the essence of everything that's happening, bedwetting is also um, a sign of that. Things in school were not much better. Uh, Robert Tulip is remembered as being a little bit of a loner with a tendency to bully. He showed antisocial tendencies and was prone to tantrums and vandalizing school property. He would often hang out with children that were younger than him. Um, classmates presume now that it was because they were easier for him to beat up and dominate. He was bullied by kids his own age and in turn bullied children younger than him. Robert on one occasion beat the crap out of a little boy with an artificial leg um, seemingly unprovoked, he was known for random acts of violence. From his own words, Robert said that he was aware of his sexuality and sex in general at a very early age. He says that when he was around five or six, he compared genitalia with a girl of a similar age, which started, I guess you could call it an obsession, um, with the female genitalia. And I mean, really, with just his own genitalia, female genitalia, and just orifices in general. Um, but this interaction really changes something in him for him um, because he does become really fixated on the female vagina. Um, around eight years old, he says that he started to insert things into his anus, which he would do for more or less the rest of his life. And later in life, he says that he thinks he should have been born a female, a thought that he um, presumed blossomed during his first exploratory events. Um, I read in an article that apparently he said that when he saw that little girl's vagina he felt like he shouldn't have a penis and that he should also have the vagina. So it's, it wasn't like he wanted to be a girl. He just didn't like his own sex organs, I guess is like the best way to explain it. Um, I, yeah, which this is a very personal, um, so obviously not to me, but to Robert sidebar because this anus fixation thing. And like, I, I'm always telling you this because there's a lot of stuff that I'm leaving out just because it's, it's, it's a little much um, for me, even. Once again, I'm not. I've, I've always said this. I'm not here to kink shame. I'm not here to kink shame. But also, there are just some things that, like, you should not just don't tell people, right? Um, but apparently, like this this anus fixation thing. Um, it started when he was eight. 
um, like we said beforehand, but like later in life, photographs were found of him that he took himself with objects like a wine bottle, a telephone handset, and even a table leg in his anus. And when he was questioned about these things by police, because obviously that's where we're going, um, he said that he wanted to see how much he could fit up there, which I guess is a very valid question. I don't know how much you could fit up there. Um, he also said as a child... Uh, he had often had fantasies about pooping on his hands and then rubbing that poop all over his face. So you can have that information. Um, back to the living situation. Um, despite Margaret's insistence on cleanliness, Robert had little interest in his own cleanliness. The other children referred to him as smelly Robbie Tulip, which doesn't earn points for creativity, but I do like the bluntness, bluntness of the nickname. So I do have to admit... This was one of the reasons why I was interested in this case to begin with, because at the top of the Murderpedia article that I was just perusing, it will usually tell you, like, if the person had a nickname, like, the Golden State Killer or BTK, and this guy, it just said Smelly Bob up at the top, and of course, my interest was piqued. And, like, what could I say, you know? I know... I love the thing that, like, everybody's, like, stop giving serial killers cool nicknames. Um, and I completely agree. Smelly Bob is a great nickname for a serial killer. It's demeaning and straight to the point. So despite being, um, for lack of a better phrase at this point, like, just a pain in the ass, Robert wasn't ever into getting, ever getting into any serious trouble. He had uh, childish fights, bullied younger children, and was, but, like, he wasn't really serious about his schoolwork or anything. But he also, like, at this point, is not a criminal, um, he's just a nuisance in general, but he's, he's not bad yet. Um, but like as, okay, so his exploration of the human body continues. Like we discussed before at five years old, he and a girl looked at each other's privates. He said that at the age of eight, he was watching a neighbor's baby and took off the diaper just to look at her privates. And I read a passage in an article about all the Freudian nuances to his behavior and um, that is some real deep psychology, and that could honestly take up a podcast in itself. We could go down a really, really deep rabbit hole that, frankly, I'm not sure if we would ever get to the bottom of. So let's, I think where this is where we're going to button up this topic. And if you want to know more about it and find this stuff super fascinating, there's a few articles out there about um, specifically Robert Black and how he falls right into the Freudian um, ideology of, I guess, the male psyche. And, uh, yeah, I'm not... We're done. <laughs> we're done talking about it because it gets really into, like, a lot of sex stuff and a lot of his personal sex stuff. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it really doesn't pertain to a lot of, like, what we're going to talk about coming up I mean it doesn't it doesn't because obviously a lot of the stuff is like very sexually motivated but like getting into Robert Black's head is not really something that I feel like doing right now and if that's something you would love to do I implore you to do that and then give me a Cliffsnose version of um, what happened let me know what you find in 1958 Margaret Tulip passes away and this is where everything goes like south I mean we were even like kind of south already we're going to go even more south than we are right now. Robert's only 11 when this happens, and he has already effectively lost two mothers. And for a child with an already pretty precarious grasp on, I mean, 
decorum and like reality in general because I mean even as a kid like even at eight years old you know like not to look at a baby's privates you know I mean it, it's I get, I get being a curious but at the same time like I think that's like a different maybe a different level of curiosity I suppose that's just me um but he's got a pretty precarious grasp on decorum and really just reality in general and that's not good from what I've read another couple had offered to take him in um, but soon after moving into their home, he committed his first known sexual assault, where he took the young girl into a bathroom and fondled her. His new foster mother found out and demanded that he was removed from the home. So he ends up at the Reading Children's Home, which is closer to the area of Scotland where he was born. He apparently was known for exposing himself to other children, namely the girls. And at the age of 12, Robert had his first attempt at rape. Apparently, he and two other boys took a girl whom all of these people were about the same age. Uh, they took her out to a field. They forced her underwear off and tried to, um, you know, but they couldn't do it. Either way, the authorities were notified, thank goodness, and Robert was removed from that child home and moved to Red House, um, which is an environment that was much more strict and disciplined and was an all-male environment. Red House knew his history, though, so that's good. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, they knew his history, and they knew that now he was a bully, and for all intents and purposes, a rapist, and he was on watch. Um, and this place is no joke. He was listed as boy number 28 and effectively had his identity stripped. Unfortunately, in a place that's supposed to help fix him, um, in however you want to interpret that, I mean... I don't always agree that stricter environments are a key, but sometimes they do provide a type of environment where it works. I mean, not always, but I, I think the purpose of this was to set him straight and to put him on a path of normalcy, and they thought he was young enough to kind of do this. Um, unfortunately, th this could have been the case, and I don't know if it would have been the case otherwise, but over a two-year time frame at Red House, Robert was sexually assaulted um, by a member of the staff. Um, back to the article on psychology about this, even though I said we were done talking about it, we're going to talk about it one more time. Um, I found this part particularly interesting. Um, so it, it, it kind of teaches Robert a lesson here. So like maybe he would have been perfectly fine and perfectly normal had this not happened. Um, it's very, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how unfortunate it is that this happened to him. And I'm not, I'm not in any shape, way, or form justifying anything that Robert Black does in the future. But at the same time, like, this is just one more thing he really doesn't need happening to him. And I really think, um, in some sense, kind of shuttles him into the, the path of where he's going. So... Robert is used to being in the role of the abuser, the dominant one. Um, he has become abused, the submissive one. And it's suggested that up until this point, Robert had really seen it that way as a dominant and submissive relationship. And now that he's switched roles, it's really solidifying for him the normalcy of it. Um, normalcy for him, right? Because he hasn't known anything else. And he had done it to someone, and now someone has done it to him. And at this young, super impressionable age, Robert is associating affection and sexual gratitude in, as something that can just be taken without any regard to what the other person wants. He's done it and has had it done onto him. And it's creating a standard for him to base all these sexual encounters he's going to have off of these things. So 
maybe you've taken an environment where he could have been normal and he could have grown out of this and he could have got done better. But now, now you've showed him that it's okay. And you showed him that like, this is just the way it is. And this is how you proceed in life. And this is how you get what you want. Um, during this time, despite all that he's going through, he attended Musselburgh Grammar School, where he actually did relatively well academically. He was above average um, when it came to school, but he found real athletic passion here. Robert found himself excelling in swimming and football. I'm assuming that means soccer. Um, unfortunately, Robert had poor eyesight, which held him back from ever doing it seriously. In 1962, at age 15, Robert had done his time at Red House. He got a job as a delivery boy and was able to find a room to rent in a boy's home outside of Glasgow. In his own admission, Robert molested 30 to 40 girls during his delivery rounds in varying degrees of success. He said that while he was doing his rounds, if there was a girl on her own when he was making the delivery, he would sit down and chat with them for a while and then try to touch them. Sometimes he was successful, other times not. Now, mind you... After hearing that, those are his words. Absolutely not mine. That's gross. Um, just clarifying. Um, none of this behavior seems to have been reported. In 1963, Robert saw a seven-year-old girl playing alone in a local park. He lured her to a deserted building on the pretense of showing her some kittens. Um, mind you, I think Robert is 16 or almost 17 at this point, just to put that into perspective for you. Once he got her alone, he held her by the throat until she lost consciousness, where he then masturbated over her body. After he was finished, he left her there. Um, presumably for dead, he didn't seem to care whether she lived or not. She was found later that day, wandering the streets, bleeding, crying, and confused. The following day, Robert was arrested and charged with lewd and libidinous behavior. And get this, the case was brought to court, and uh, Robert... Oh, and I forgot to mention, he goes by Robert Black again now. Um, after his foster mom died, he took on his original last name. And I don't know if this has anything to do with how this goes across. I'm assuming not, but he, so we're here. Um, because Robert is given, uh, he's giving, given an admonishment, which is a verdict in Scottish law, which pretty much is just a slap on the wrist and says, like, don't do it again. Um, they had him evaluated by a psychiatrist, um, and that psychiatrist said that this was an event that was most likely an isolated one and that he didn't need treatment because another act like this was super unlikely to happen. Um, and, and an act like this would never occur in the rest of his regular development. Um, yep. So at this point, right, Robert is 17. He's molested one child. His temporary foster mom caught him. He's attempted to rape a girl because he got kicked out of school for it. And he left a child for dead after doing god-awful things to her. And these are all on record somewhere. I mean, maybe not. He's never had charges pressed against him. But these are live in the ether as a record somewhere. And, like, not even to mention his own admission of some type of molestation that they don't even know about. But he's, he's definitely got a track record. And we're just going to, like, ignore that. We're just going to glaze over that because this man apparently a super normal child, according to this psychiatrist. I just really want to know what type of evaluation occurred or what he said to get through the system this way, whether he was like just charismatic enough to convince these people that he wasn't a problem, or if the psychiatrist was really that inept, or if the court just couldn't put these things together. Um, but either, I mean, any way you hash it, 
Robert Black just had a lesson learned, again, that there isn't always consequences for your actions. While not a legal action, but apparently he was flagged on the social services probation report, which I'm not exactly sure what that means, um, but they suggested that he move out of the Glasgow area and return to Grangemouth, um, where he was born, to start fresh. Which, I mean, at least someone did something, but at the same time, moving isn't going to fix the problem. You know, like, he needs some type of psychiatric counseling, some type of assistance. Like, making him relocate isn't going to do a whole lot for him, but at least it's, it's better than nothing, I suppose. And I said it, I know I've said it like a thousand times. I've probably said it 60 times now. <laughs> and I know that hindsight, I know that hindsight's 2020. But I feel like right here is truly a pivotal moment where this could have had a different outcome. And I mean, especially this, but him getting sent to Red House, this situation happening right here, there were several opportunities for something to happen to alter the path. And instead, he gets sent to Red House where he's molested himself and that obviously doesn't do anything good for the situation. And then now he, he's done this awful thing and he is not being reprimanded for it, just being told to move away. So I, like I, I understand. I, I, it doesn't, I don't know. I mean, obviously it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the past because we're here. It's just frustrating that even up until now, there's been so many signs and so much evidence that this isn't going to end well. And yet here we are barreling down a path toward oblivion. And the people who might have had a chance to stop it, I mean, like even looking at it now, like looking at this even kind of objectively, the people who might have had a chance to stop it, they're not doing anything. They're not doing a whole lot. Um, Robert follows those orders and moves back home. I use that term very loosely, but he goes back. He gets a job with a builder's supply company and rents a room with an older couple. He gets a girlfriend, her name is Pamela, and they're serious, even to the point of getting engaged. Um, although, very abruptly, Pamela ends the relationship a couple months in, and Robert was devastated. Um, after their breakup, although it could have happened during their breakup, um, Robert has said that he didn't do anything bad while they were together, but, I mean, you're believing that guy. Um, it was found out that Robert had been less been molesting his roommate's nine-year-old granddaughter whenever she would visit. The couple were kind of more like his landlords, not so much his roommates, but upon hearing this information, he was evicted. The police were not called, though, in order to save the child from more trauma, and I get that. I definitely understand that, but man. So shortly after being evicted, Robert lost his job. He left the city he was born in to return to Kinleclevin, which is the city he was raised in. He found a home to share with a couple who had a young daughter. Um, some articles say six, some say she was seven. And just like before, Robert molested the girl. The girl told her parents, the police were notified, and Robert Black was convicted of three counts of indecent assault and sentenced to spend a year of, of borstal training at Polmont. And borstal training, because I didn't know what it is, and I'm assuming you don't know what it is, um, is kind of like juvie, from what I can tell. It's a youth detention program that's whole intention is to reform young offenders. Borstals are typically for people under the age of 23, and there aren't any borstals anymore because the system was abolished in 1982. But at this point, um, like the point of it was to separate uh, youths from older convicts in adult prisons. The focus is highly regulated with a focus on um, routine, discipline, and authority. However, there is sometimes a downside to that with a comment that said, more often than not, there were a breeding ground for bullies and psychopaths. 
which Robert Black is questionably both. So I don't think he needed any more of that. Um, He's already on that path. But it looks like his time at the Borstal greatly altered Robert Black and for the worst. Um, In later interviews, Robert talks openly and freely about many things, um, including uh, his sexual abuse at Red House, but he does not talk about his time at the Borstal, only saying that from that experience, he vowed to never be imprisoned again, and what happened to him there is a mystery. In March of 1968, Robert is released from the Borstal, and six months later, he moves to London. He found a place to live near King's Cross Station. He supported himself through odd jobs, and one of those odd jobs was serving as a lifeguard at a public swimming pool. He was fired for fondling a young girl, but no charges were pressed. Apparently around this time, Robert turns to child pornography. He buys it from sources and creates some himself, taking pictures of kids at the swimming pool. In 1972... He becomes friends with a Scottish couple. Remember, he is Scottish. Um, They were Ed and Kathy Rayson. He moves into their attic, and they thought he was a loner, but a, quote, big softie. So they took him in and let him live in their attic. Um, In some cases I've read, he lived there for free. In some I've read, he paid rent. The couple had children who were um, allowed to spend time with him. Fortunately, nothing untoward happened with Ed and Kathy's children. They considered him a friend, even though their nickname for him was Smelly Bob, because he stank. They said he was a reclusive tenant, and aside from his hygiene, they had no complaints. They suspected that he frequently watched porn, but they had no clue it could have been pedophilic in nature. In 1976, Robert gets a job working as a van driver for Poster Dispatch and Storage Limited. They were a company whose fleet delivered posters, um, usually with like pop stars or rock stars on them, and billboard advertisements to locations throughout the UK, Ireland, and the rest of Europe. His employer thought Robert was perfect for the job because he was willing to do the longer, more involved journeys that his married co-workers didn't want to. He worked there for 10 years, but was ultimately let go because of like car accidents and things like that, like nothing super serious. Sorry, I lost my place. Um, During this time, Robert Black learns the UK road network, especially the side roads. He is constantly changing his appearance, beard to no beard, growing his hair out long, shaving his head completely bald. He owned 12 different pairs of glasses and would switch them out often. And at some point, he covered the rear windows of his van with black opaque curtains. Robert Black is up to no good. On August 12th, 1981, nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi left her home around 1.40 p.m. to cycle to a friend's house. She never got there. A few hours later, her bike was discovered less than a mile from her home, covered with branches and leaves. The kickstand of her bike was down, which indicated to some that she had stopped and got off her bike to talk to her abductor. After the bike was found, 200 volunteers searched the surrounding area for her, but she was not found. Six days later, on August 18th, two fishermen found her body in a reservoir by a a rest stop nearly 16 miles from her home. An autopsy concluded that she had been sexually assaulted and died from drowning. She was wearing a watch, which had been stopped at 5.40 p.m., Her body had been found on a major thoroughfare between Belfast and Dublin, and the reservoir she was found in was near a route frequented by long-distance delivery drivers, suggesting that whoever had abducted her was very familiar with this route. Almost a year later, on July 30, 1982, 11-year-old Susan Maxwell left her home to play a game of tennis. Local farmers gave her a ride to the game, but she decided to walk back on her own. Several local witnesses remembered seeing her until she crossed a bridge over a river where she was never seen again after that. 
She was last seen alive at 4.30 p.m., and when she didn't return home from the game, of course her parents were worried. They called her friend, who was supposed to be at the game with her, who said that Susan and her had parted ways on the way home. In the days after Susan's appearance, disappearance, the countryside um, from, where she, from where the tennis game was played to where her home is were searched extensively. Search dogs were used. Over 300 officers were assigned full-time to searching. Over 80 square miles of land were essentially torn apart in the hunt for Susan. In the investigation, several people had reported seeing a white van in the area, and one person said they had even seen the van parked near a field off 8697. On August 12th, Susan's body was found by a man named Arthur Meadows. It was in a ditch next to a rest stop by the A518. It was 250 miles away from where Susan had been abducted. Susan's parents asked if they could see her, to which the police officers told them that that was not such a good idea. The weather had been very warm, and Susan had to be identified by her dental records. There wasn't any obvious indication of cause of death, and her body had been covered with grass and detritus, and her underwear had been removed and folded and then placed behind her head. The coroner was able to conclude that she had been killed very shortly after being taken. Unfortunately, at this point, there really isn't any strong evidence to point police to a culprit. The following year, on July 8, 1983, five-year-old Caroline Hogg was playing outside her home in the early evening. When she didn't come inside at her instructed time, 7.15 p.m., her family searched the surrounding area for her. A young neighbor boy told them that he had seen Caroline with a man, an adult, holding hands outside the nearby promenade, which was called Fun City. Caroline was forbidden to go there on her own. Her family searched the area with no luck and called the police. In the inquiry, numerous eyewitnesses recalled seeing an unkempt, balding, furtive-looking man wearing horn-rimmed glasses watching Caroline while she played at Fun City. He paid for Caroline to ride a carousel as he watched. The two left the fairground at 7.30 p.m. and an eyewitness that Caroline seemed frightened. And I understand, I mean, hear me out. Wouldn't you say something? Like, if you're noticing that there's a little girl with an older man obviously looking uncomfortable, I mean, wouldn't you, like, at least kind of keep your eye on them and make sure they didn't go anywhere? I guess that's just my own my own personal opinion. Uh, police quickly set up search parties. Caroline had been abducted on a Friday night, and by Sunday there were over 600 volunteers who scoured every inch of the local area for any sign of her. Caroline's disappearance made headline news all over the U.K., a week later, that number had risen to over 2,000 people. It was the largest search ever carried out in Scotland, but they wouldn't find her. Caroline's body was found on July 18th by a rest stop in Leicestershire, over 300 miles away from where she'd last been seen. She was only 24 miles away from where Susan Maxwell's body had been found. Caroline was found naked and in a very similar situation to Susan. Her cause of death couldn't be determined because the extent extensiveness of her decomposition. Forensic entomologists determined that her body had most likely been there since the 12th of July. A year after her death, there was a televised reconstructions of Caroline's crimes. Um, well, her crime. Caroline's father was there pleading for witnesses to come forward, and he said, you think it can never happen to you, but it's proven time and time again that it can, and it could again if this man isn't caught in the near future. With the discovery of Caroline's body and its proximity to Susan's, detectives unanimously decide that the murders are connected. Um, Jennifer isn't connected to any of these crimes until 2009, so she isn't forgotten about, but there's, she's not part of this investigation. Her case had been cold for a long time. Um, but with this, 
this is because of the distance um, between where they were taken and where they were found, how they were found, and, I mean, other factors on top of that. Detectives on this task force determined that they're looking for a lorry or a van driver or some type of sales representative, someone who's driving and traveling extensively. They also presume that this man is an opportunist operating and acting when available. Also, because both girls have been abducted on a Friday, the detectives believe that the killer was tied to some type of production schedule or a normal work week. Following the discovery of Caroline's body, all the major routes were stationed with law enforcement, stopping and questioning delivery drivers. Nothing fruitful came from this. Though, this search, though, a task force involving four major police departments in the investigation is formed. Like I said before, though, there is definitely an interesting and historical event that occurs during these crimes, though. <clears throat> so around this time, there was a system called a card filing system, which contained information on index cards stored in a box. Police had recently been burned with the Yorkshire Ripper investigation, a.k.a. Peter Sutcliffe, because the card filing system broke, um, which not literally, but there was an overwhelming amount of information which actually hindered the investigation and the catching of Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe because they had so much information on him. Um, as of right now, the card filing system in the Susan Maxwell case, so just this in this moment, has over 500,000 index cards alone. And if you add in the investigation for Caroline, you're looking at a mess. Um, information, just pure overload. So upon the creation of the task force and solving of these murders, one of the first decisions made um, was to forego the card system and use computer technology in the investigation. All the information was put in a computerized database, which all police forces in the manhunt could access. And, you know, if you're young, you might think, well, duh, obviously moving over to a computer system makes more sense. But the computers weren't common at that time. Um, they were still, like, brand new technology. So it's, it's kind of a big deal to move over to this. So by January of 1987, all of the information from the murders of Mar Caroline and Susan were entered into the Holmes, the computer database. It cost nearly 250,000 pounds to implement, but it held information from over 189,000 people, 220,000 vehicles, and over 60,000 interviews. Even though, at that time, Susan and Caroline's murders were still unsolved, this database led to the investigation and solving of unrelated crimes, including other cases and offenses of child abuse. So we're going to go back in time a little bit, because <clears throat> that was in uh, 1987, but skip back. On March 26, 1986, Sarah Jane Harper, who was 10 years old, disappeared from a suburb of Morley. She left her home to buy a loaf of bread from a shop that was, I mean, literally a football field length away from her home. She made it to the store, bought a loaf of bread and two packs of chips, um, and then returned two empty glass bottles uh, from lemonade, as confirmed by the shop owner. At around 7.55, Sarah left, and the shopkeeper noted that a balding man entered the store right after Sarah did and left while she was making her purchases. Around 8.15, Sarah's mom began, began to get concerned. The trip in total should have taken her five minutes, uh, so Sarah's sister was sent out to look for her, thinking she was dawdling or got distracted. Um, there were two girls that had known Sarah, and they saw her cut through an alley, presumably on her way home. But Sarah's sister couldn't find her. The police were called around 9 p.m., but just like the last time, Sarah was gone. Over 100 police officers were assigned full-time to the search. There was an extensive house-to-house -house interview system put into place where over 3,000 properties were searched, 10,000 leaflets were handed out, and 1,400 people were interviewed. Inquiries yielded valuable information uh, that a white Ford Transit had been in the area where Sarah was abducted, 
Two suspicious men were loitering in the area Sarah would have walked home. Assuming the worst, Sarah's disappearance was broadcast through the task force system, hoping someone would find her. On April 19th, David Malt was walking his dog by the River Trent in Nottingham, 71 miles away from where she was taken. He saw something floating in the river and used a stick to poke at it when he realized it was a body. He used the stick to finagle the body toward the shore and then called the police. Sarah had been partially dressed, gagged, and violently sexually assaulted. In the days after Sarah's body was found, more witness testimonies were taken. One stated that around 9.15 p.m. on March 26, they had seen a white van with a stocky, balding man standing by the passenger door by a river that feeds into the River Trent. The description of the man and the vehicle both matched what witnesses had said where she had been taken. <clears throat> Even with the similarities, initially there was some doubt that Sarah's murder was connected to Caroline and Susan's. Susan and Caroline had been abducted in the height of summer. Sarah was abducted in spring. Susan and Caroline had both been abducted on a Friday wearing summer clothing attire, where Sarah was abducted on a rainy Wednesday after, or Wednesday evening wearing a hooded coat. Despite these differences, Sarah Harper's murder was formally linked to the other two in November of 1986. With the official addition of Sarah into this crime spree, two more police forces are added to the task force, making it six now. The task force contacted the FBI, asking them to create a psychological profile for them. Unfortunately, the Holmes system lets them down this time. Uh, detectives figured that only those with convictions for serious sexual offenses against children would warrant further investigation, which is an excellent idea and a great start. Unfortunately, they limited it to within 10 years of Susan's murder in 1982. Um, and in a disturbing amount, just in, a, in an alarming, I guess, very alarming situation, there were 40,000 men on the list. But Robert Black was not going to be found because his only conviction had taken place in 1967. But to know that there were 40,000 men on that list is just disgusting. By 1988, the FBI had gotten back to investigators. And here's some summary of their um, psychological report. This profile described the killer as a white male aged between 30 and 40, likely closer to 40, who was a classic loner. This offender would be unkempt in appearance and had received less than 12 years of formal education. He likely lived alone in a rented accommodation in a lower middle class neighborhood. This profile also deduced that the motive for the child killings was sexual, that the offender had a fixation with child pornography, that he retained souvenirs from his victims, and that he most likely engaged in necrophilia with his victim's body shortly after their death before disposing of them. The abduction of his victim from a public area within walking distance of the victim's residence represents a desperate act by a man whose need for little children is greater than his fear of being exposed as a pedophile. He was relaxed and comfortable while buying the victim's favor in a public area because he spends a great deal of time in places watching and seeking out young victims. On April 23, 1988, there was an ab attempted abduction that happened in Nottingham, but wasn't initially attributed to the three previous murders. It was unreported to anyone in the task force. The victim's name was Teresa Thornhill, and it, um, she was actually 15 years old, but she was only 5'11", which possibly made her look a lot younger than she actually was. Teresa was hanging out in a local park with her boyfriend when um, she walked home with him. The couple parted ways. Uh, Teresa noted a blue transit van slowing to a stop ahead of her. The driver got out opened um, and opened the hood of the van, and the driver, who was a man, um, asked Teresa if she knew how to fix an engine, which is a very odd question to ask a child. Um, fine. But Teresa said that she could not and began to walk away, but much faster this time, and Robert 
obviously her attacker, grabbed her and tried to drag her back to his van. Uh, Tara resisted. Tara. Teresa resisted, kicking and picking, uh, picking up a fight against him. She got to the point where she squeezed his testicles hard enough for him to loosen his grip, and she bit very hard into his forearm. Teresa, with her mouth free, was able to scream and resist being put into the van, and her boyfriend heard the struggle and ran towards the altercation. Robert dropped Teresa, leaving her in the street, and got into his van and fled the scene. The attempted abduction was immediately reported to the police, and they described, so Teresa and her boyfriend described, the attacker as an unkempt, overweight, balding, and heavily built man who was around the ages of 40 to 50 and 5 foot 7 in height. On July 14, 1990, David Herks was mowing his front yard. He saw a blue transit van slow to a stop uh, across the street. The driver got out to do something. David wasn't sure if it was for him to clean his windshield or something similar. But David also noted that his neighbor's six-year-old daughter was outside playing near where the van had parked. David was minding his own business, but was interested in the situation. While he was bending down to clean his lawnmower, he saw the little girl's feet lifting from the pavement and disappearing. Then the car sped off. He just realized that he'd witnessed an abduction, got the license plate number, and ran toward the girl's parents' home to have them call police. Minutes later, the village was flooded with police cars. As David Herks was talking to the police, he noticed the van was headed in their direction. It was coming towards him. It was coming back. He exclaimed that it was the van, and the police jumped in front of the vehicle to get it to stop. Robert was removed from the vehicle and handcuffed. One of the officers in the group was the father of the abducted girl. He opened the van and climbed inside, screaming his daughter's name. He saw a sleeping bag that had been uh, like zip-tied shut, and it was moving. He found his daughter inside, wrists bound behind her back, legs tied together, and gagged. On the way to the police station, Robert said, I w- It was a rush of blood to the head. I have always liked little girls since I was a lad. I tied her up because I wanted to keep her until I had dropped a parcel off. I was going to let her go. But we absolutely know he had no intentions of letting her go, of course. When Robert Black got back to the police station, he admitted to sexually assaulting the girl, but he didn't do any more because he, quote, didn't have much time, which rot in hell, you sick fuck. He was charged with abduction and placed in custody. And while he was waiting for his court appearance, the detective superintendent noted the similarities in this case and the other unsolved murders. He called Hector Clark, who was the man in charge of the task force, and notified him. And on July 16th, Hector came to interview Robert Black. A search of Robert's van found restraining devices, including assorted ropes, tape, and hoods, a Polaroid camera, numerous articles of girls' clothing, a mattress, and a selection of sexual aids. I'm not sure what a sexual aid is. Um, Robert claimed that on his long-distance deliveries, he would pull into a rest stop and dress in the children's clothing clothing before masturbating. He gave no plausible explanation for the sex aids. Uh, At the request of Scottish detectives, uh, his home was searched as well. The search yielded a large collection of child pornography in magazine, book, photographic, and video format, including 58 videos and films depicting graphic child sexual abuse, which apparently Robert admitted to buying in continental Europe. Um, Also found were several items of children's clothing, uh, six pairs of glasses, a semen-stained copy of a newspaper that was detailing the abduction of Teresa Thornhill and more sex aids. Uh, His trial for the abduction charge lasted one day. Uh, 
Robert freely admitted his pedophilic preferences and claimed to have successfully fought against his urge to abduct young child or young girls um, prior to the incident at issue. He also said uh, his defense attorney said that Robert wanted to uh, he accepted that he was a danger and <laughs> wished to undergo treatment. So from this, um, prior to him, him giving him his sentence, um, it was discussed, I mean, just how bad of a person Robert Black was. Um, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for what um, was described by the court as a horrific, appalling case. Uh, he was psychiatrically evaluated again, um, and this time, thank goodness, they all concluded that Robert was and would remain an extreme danger to children. Um, in September of 1990, Robert was like, I'm going to appeal this life sentence, um, but he gave up on that shortly afterwards. Two weeks after his trial, Hector Clark, the guy in charge of the task force, uh, conducted another interview with Robert Black because he had an interview before him, but it really didn't yield anything. Um, Robert really didn't want to talk to him. Um, but now that he's, you know, in jail and going to be serving a life sentence, he does seem a little more chatty because this interview lasted six hours where Robert freely discussed all of his abnormalities. Now, at no point in time, even though he was kind of, he talked about his traumas, he talked about kind of just being a bad person, but he never really opened up about any of the murders or anything at all. He kind of skirted the subject. Um... So despite it lasting six hours and him being very open about it, it never, it did, it didn't at any point in time advance the murder investigation. Um, but Clark informed his two colleagues that were working with him. He said, that's our man. I'd bet my life on it. So on April 13th, 1994, Robert Black appeared in court again, um, for the murders, uh, he pleaded not guilty to each of the 10 charges of kidnap, murder, attempted kidnap, and preventing the lawful burial of a body. And I just, I wanted to include this for just a second because, like, I understand that as a defense attorney, you have a job and that, like, it's obviously your job to defend your client, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise. But, like, I just found this so abhorrent and, like, disgusting that I wanted to read it to you. Um... So his defense attorney reminded the jury that the police had been unsuccessfully investigating these crimes for eight years before Black's 1990 arrest and conviction on the abduction he was caught doing. Um, he said that investigators had seized on a case to attempt uh, to get a scapegoat, and uh, it was solely to appease their feelings of frustration and failure in an effort to restore broken reputations. Uh, he claimed that although the paraphernalia introduced into evidence um, kind of alluded to his obsession with uh, pedophilic, pedophilic material, no direct evidence existed to prove Black had progressed from a molester to a murderer. I mean, fine. And describing uh, his decision to not let Robert testify on his own behalf, uh, it, it just, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, he said that no man can be expected to remember the ordinary daily routine of his life going back many years. Either way, on May 19th, 1994, the jury found Robert guilty on three counts of kidnapping, three counts of murder, three counts of preventing the lawful burial of a body, and one count of attempted abduction. He was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment for each count. 
Apparently, when the sentences and the um, when all that was read to him, he remained unmoved upon hearing that. But as he prepared to leave, um, like the stand or like the courtroom, he turned to the detectives from the task force, who had been, I mean, searching for this guy for a very long time, over eight years. Um, and he turned and said to him, said to them, tremendous, well done, boys. And apparently this statement caused the detectives to weep. And uh, from there, he was transferred to prison as a Category A prisoner, which I guess is like the highest level of prisoner that you can be. It's some serious business. On December 15th, 2009, Robert Black was summoned to court again for the 1981 murder charges of Jennifer Cardi. Um, there was circumstantial evidence as testing to his guilt. Um, they had gone through 560,000 receipts to place him where he needed to be. Um, there's also loads of other evidence on the trial, too. Um, this trial lasted six weeks, and the jury deliberated for four hours. On October 27th, 2011, he was found guilty, and his term was extended. The eight-year nationwide inquiry, which culminated in the 1990 arrest of Robert Black, proved to be one of the longest, most exhaustive, and costly British murder, murder investigations of the 20th century. Um, while in prison in 1995, Black was attacked in his cell at a Wakefield prison by two inmates who threw boiling water mixed with sugar over him, bludgeoned him with a table leg, and then stabbed him in the back and neck with an improvised knife. Um, he deserved all of that. Uh, he sustained superficial wounds, burns, and bruising in the attack, and his attackers were jailed for three extra years after admitting um, they, they said he wanted to hurt Black with intent to cause grievous, grievous bodily harm, which, fair. I would, too. Um, Robert Black never admitted responsibility in any of the murders of which he was convicted or suspected of committing um, and refused to cooperate with investigators in all. Um, even in spite of hope, having little hope to ever be freed, he still, at, at that point, never even thought about being helpful. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Black died from a heart attack at HMP Magberry, which is a hospital, on January 12th, 2016, he was 68 years old. His body was cremated, and no friends or family were present at a service. Um, yeah, his ashes were scattered at sea in February of 2016. And as, like, a button-up, uh, Robert Black has been linked to at least 14 other child murders and disappearances in the, in the UK, Ireland, and other continental Europe, um, including, like, France and Germany. Um, but there's no super hard evidence to, um, I mean, he's a massive, a very solid suspect in those cases, but he's not directly attributed to them. He's just kind of suspected of it. Um, and with that, I mean, that's, that's the case. Um, yeah, <laughs> kind of a doozy of, of a case, but at least, at least they caught him, you know, and it's not unsolved and somebody can find peace in that. And with that, um... I'm going to go make dinner. <laughs> um, I will see you all next week. And hopefully, hopefully my brain has some time to relax. Thank you if you stayed the whole way. And I'll talk to you next time.